Mayor Rothschild was born in 1744 in Frankfurt, Germany, in a ghetto known as Jew Alley. The living conditions were difficult, but it was there that the young Rothschild began to learn about business. His father was a silk merchant and would exchange foreign currency. Later, he learned about rare coins from the Roman and Byzantine empires. The persons most interested in these rare coins were princes and other nobles. Because of Rothschild's large collection of rare coins, Mayer attracted the attention of the crowned prince Wilhelm of Hesse. The prince grew to trust Mayer in all matters of investing and finance. When Prince Wilhelm Hesse came into power, he inherited one of the largest fortunes in Europe. Wilhelm trusted the Rothschild to be his Hofjuda, German for court Jew, which meant Mayer Rothschild was in a position to manage and protect Wilhelm's properties, wealth, and tax collection. This position was put to the test when Napoleon invaded Germany. Mayer Rothschild had seen this coming. Some years earlier, he had sent his son to London to begin a finance business similar to his business in Germany. He then moved the royal funds to London. He lent those funds to the British for the war effort against Napoleon, making a fortune in the effort. Before Mayor Rothschild's death, he sent his sons to live in strategic cities throughout Europe, linking five Rothschild banking branches. In the 19th century, the Rothschilds made their massive fortune by playing both sides of wars and lending to governments. Mystery surrounds the Rothschild family, their wealth, their business practices, and their current holdings. Mayer is famous for his quote, Let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes the laws. What we do know is that the Rothschilds excelled where Christians have not. Why is it that Christians in the last 150 years have excelled at being conquered? Why is it that once proud Christian institutions like denominations, hospitals, universities, and countries are now in the hands of pagans? Why did the Christians hand these institutions over without a fight? Jesus said in a parable, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Never has Jesus's parable been more true than in our time. Not only have Christians failed to preserve and pass on cities and states that were founded by Christians, but Christians of our time fail to pass on their personal wealth, money, and space to their generations. They steal the inheritance of their generations and leave their grandchildren nothing. We must correct this mistake. The building of new Christendom depends on men loving their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren by thinking like a Christian about wealth, money, and space, and not thinking like a modern consumer. We, by the grace of God, will build, fight, and win. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Welcome back to the King's Hall podcast. My name is Brian Sauvey, joined here with my good friends, Daniel what is it, Berkowitz? What did you say on the After Hours last week? 
Berkowitz. Berkowitz. Right. Berkowitz Bunkholder and uh, Eric Kahn. That's right. How you doing, gentlemen? Why did you mispronounce his name? Because I'm the well, fraud king of Kentucky. <laughs> in, Speaking of money. Yeah, if you ever if you ever want to have a good time, just Google Eric Kahn. I'm not going to explain anymore. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this episode here. Uh, we're, we're taking up one of the most important subjects, uh, in my opinion at least, on uh, this season of the King's Hall. This is an area where you cannot accomplish... You cannot accomplish the aim of this season, which is what? The new Christendom. You can't accomplish that aim if you get this wrong. I think you can say it that plainly. And it's the issue of wealth, money, and space. Wealth, money, and space. If you don't understand this, if, if you fall into the ditch on either side of the road when it comes to wealth, money, and space, then you will not create the kind of Christians, the kind of families, the kind of churches, the kind of nations that will be able to maintain robustly Christian society, robustly Christian culture over the long haul. And so we're going to be talking about this issue in really three fairly simple parts in the episode today. The first is simply establishing that Christians have struggled to think rightly about wealth, money, and space. We're going to talk about what it looks like when you don't get this right, why people aren't getting this right, what kind of theological errors are leading to wrong thinking and wrong practice, praxis even, uh, you know, surrounding this issue of wealth, money, and space. That's part one. Uh, part two, and, I, and I, when I say part one, I know I'm talking, and so you might assume this is going to be like a 12-part series, but this is one episode. Uh, the second part of this episode, we're going to talk about why this failure of theology has made Christians who are very good at getting conquered is the result if you get this wrong at least in one of the directions you can get it wrong. And then number three, we're going to talk about how you can think and act rightly on this subject and really try to get pretty practical. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about principles, we'll talk high level, but really we want this to be helpful in thinking through, no, like right now, you as a man listening to this show, how can you take away some principles and some actionable items to do better on this area, in this area, and set up your generations, your church, your community for success, for fruitfulness when it comes to wealth, money, and space. Just practically, what should you do? How can you, how can you change things? Maybe your family uh, left you nothing. Maybe they left you debt and bad examples. Maybe, <laughs> maybe your parents are, you know, they had their, their government job and they're, but they're, planning on leaving you exactly $0 as they coast through their retirement until the last month of their life when the nursing home pulls the last you know, dollar out of their 401k and then leaves you with no inheritance. How can you be thinking better about this than maybe you received? Uh, sound good? Sounds great. Yep. So Dan, maybe we should start with just understanding what do we even mean when we're talking, like we, I've used this phrase several times, wealth, money, and space. What does that even mean? What are we talking about? Yeah. Cause there's a lot of crossovers, right? A wealthy person has money and mm -hmm. space. Typically they also have assets. Generally speaking, uh, I think of a wealthy person as being able to cover their expenses on non-salaried income. So not from your job, mm. just from all of the other sources of income that you have. Uh, the average wealthy person has seven sources of income, I believe. Wow. And so some people call that passive income, which is kind of silly because it makes it sound like it's really easy to get, but it all takes it's work. It's just passive. It's, yeah, it's just passive. <laughs> just, so it's just basically it's wait. passive income. See, because yeah, I always yeah. think of a wealthy person as someone who fills up their gas tank and doesn't care. All the way. That all is All the way to the top. 
Yeah, yeah. What are the signs of being rich? It's really funny because growing <laughs> up, you the people that you think of being rich, like yeah. I thought. People that had Nickelodeon were loaded because <laughs> we had antennas on yeah. our TV. And like, come to find out, like, actually, people that had cable back then were not wealthy. They were actually poor because they put their money into cable. And dumber <laughs> over time. And dumber. <laughs> and yeah. dumber. No, so wealth, uh, that's just one way I think of it is being able to cover your expenses through non salaried income. Yeah. So, with all of your other sources of income that you have. The other thing is that uh, I think of assets. Assets are one of the things that wealthy people have that poor people do not have. They have a lot of assets. And that becomes really important when you know that we're in an inflationary economy because assets go up in value with inflation. And so it is a hedge. It's the best savings account you can have in so an inflationary economy. What would be an example, Dan, of assets? I mean, besides yeah, like, my gold grill in my mouth, besides yeah, that. Besides that. Yeah. So one of the the most obvious assets are like rental properties, mm. you know, commercial and residential, but like a single family uh, rental home is a, an asset that is that you are renting. You are getting rental income from it's also appreciating in value with inflation. Yeah. So th that's one. The other thing is like businesses. So owning businesses, owning stocks, bonds, especially like dividend bearing stocks, which I'm I'm just going to let you know, those are way too boring for me at this point, but that would be if you had a ton of money yep. and you had a bunch of dividends that were paid out 7%, by the way, dividends are not taxed up to $80,000 a year. So tax-free money, get to an accountant though, that or a tax accountant to make sure that that's actually true. I don't have that much income in dividends. Uh, and the other thing I would put in that that bucket would be skills. I think uh, a very skilled man is a wealthy man. He might not have tapped it in, in the traditional sense to say like, oh, that dude's rich. Yeah. But he, those people that have, have honed skills, I think are wealthy in a, in a different way. Uh, when we talk about money, just simply, I, I would just say buying power. The yeah. ability to buy, yeah, and and people, it, it can. It's this is counterintuitive, I think, in an inflationary world. People think, why would you want money? And and that sounds dumb because you're like, well, aren't we talking about wealth and space? Some people say like you should hold zero dollars at all times because of inflation. It's actually a mistake because money is optionality. Liquid That's cash. Right. What is uh, what does that mean? What does optionality mean? Optionality means that I can. Uh, react to uh, different conditions in the market. If I have cash and there's a 40% downturn, I can go buy things for 40%. You have the off. option to buy things. Yeah, 40%. I have an option. Yeah. If all of my money is tied up in illiquid assets, which, which are it. worth money, but they're hard to convert into money or they're slow to convert into money or they're even prone to moving with the market. So if the market turns way down, my illiquid assets turn down too, and I, and it's difficult for me to sell them quickly enough in many cases. So money helps you react quickly to changing yes. market conditions, among other things. Yeah, ha having cash flow and also having money in hand. For you know, for example, a church is a good example of an organization that really we're going to talk about this, but benefits from having cash on hand at you know so they can respond to difficulties, hardship, that sort of thing. So. Yeah, people might think, oh, money, but inflation, fiat's bad. Look, we get it. But uh, optionality is one of the most powerful things that you have to understand if you want to do well in this area. Yeah, so so I would say money is buying power. So it can be cash. It can be sure. fiat. It could be other things, too. Mm -hmm. uh, space would be just physical lands and buildings, even intellectual property you yeah. could probably put in there. 
to some degree or another, yeah. but I would definitely stick with more uh, the way that we're going to treat this as physical land and buildings mm-hmm. being space. You are buying space essentially. So are owning space. Yeah. So those are those those are the categories that we're going to be talking about: wealth, money, and space. Yeah, and those are kind of what they mean. What what we're going to be talking about today, as, as we define them. Yeah. So the first the first point that we wanted to take up was just uh, talking through why and how Christians have struggled to think rightly about wealth, money, and space, because this has been a common, um, you know, a, a difficult thing to get right on a theological level, to where people are uh, have been taught to think wrongly about wealth, money, and space. And that's led to, if you, if you believe the wrong thing about something, you will not treat the thing rightly. Like you, you know, obviously if you thought that the goal for something like sex was promiscuity, like the, the, the Christless manosphere, if you were like, oh yeah, the sex is about how many women can I bed? Right. So I'm going to take pickup artistry classes and really succeed in the world of sex. Well, you've actually failed because you've set the wrong target. You're aiming for the wrong thing. You're actually aiming for failure. You are trying as hard as you can to fail. And unfortunately, there have been many theological emphasis uh, or, or different and creative ways that Christians have gotten this issue of wealth, money, and space wrong. And I mean both now and in the historic church. Yeah, that's right. But, and I would say in the last, say, like 150 years, part of the biggest problem is um, that you just have to be aware of when you're talking about, you know, again, money, space, wealth. It has been colored heavily by Marxism. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I was even posting the other day. I said, listen, you know, I grew up in the young, restless, and reformed, and it was don't waste your life, which translated to, like, don't own property, get rid of it, do missions overseas, be poor, love yeah. the fact that, like, Jesus, you don't have a house. And uh, really what happened was the Marxists took that mm-hmm. and they were like, yeah, so when Bill Gates says you'll own nothing and be happy, you're like Jesus. Ooh. And so you fall into this ditch of like all, all property. I've had people on Twitter tell me property ownership is unchristian, mm. which is interesting because if you look at things like Westminster Confession and what they wrote about theft, you know, the flip side of theft is you're protecting property rights. Yes. So- God obviously believes in ownership of things. It's the presupposition under yeah. that law. For for that Is that it's lawful to own things. And then there's, a, I think, actually a much smaller ditch, but it does happen in Christian camps, which is health, wealth, and prosperity. So there definitely are crazy Kenneth Copeland people mm. who are saying, you know, pray to God and he'll give you the Cadillac. God wants you to be wealthy, Joel yes. Austin, people like this. And they are very influential in America. So I think when you, when you stack those two things up, a lot of people in between will say, well, at, at best, I should sort of detest wealth, not really want it, and not really think too much about, like, you know, building wealth, multi-generational yeah. homes. Um, and, and Dan, I think especially, that's turned most American Christians into consumers. And consumers are not people, correct me if I'm wrong, they're not people that think about assets in particular. For the project of this season to be successful, the project of seeing a new Christendom built, there will need to be thousands and thousands of Christian men and women who are equipped to stand for the truth of Scripture against the errors of both the liberal church and the pagan culture. This is one reason we're so glad to be partnering with our sponsor for this season, Reformation Heritage Books. Reformation Heritage Books offers a large selection of helpful and theologically rigorous resources on everything from biblical theology to history to blue-collar family discipleship 
the type of library and resources that could make the kind of men and women I just described, grounded in the rich heritage of the Reformed faith. We'd like to highlight one resource in particular, their Family Worship Bible Guide, that presents rich devotional thoughts on all 1,189 chapters of the Bible, including searching questions to promote conversation and to help you in leading your family in such a way as to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tap the link in the description of this episode to pick one up today. Yeah, they're not going to think about assets. The thing is, it's really interesting that you mentioned Christians turning into consumers because it's just falling from one ditch into another. Yes. And so, and and to show like a, a little bit of grace, you do have passages like in 1 Timothy. Yeah. Paul says that money is the root of all evil. The love of money. Yeah. The love of money is the root of all evil. Excuse me. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And so, but my translation is what people hear is yeah. that money is the root of all yeah, evil. Yeah, good point. He, he, yes, he says, those who want to be rich fall into a snare, essentially. This is First Timothy 6, and he, he says, it plunges them into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all. And literally in Greek, like in a lot of English translations, it will say, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It just literally says, the love of money is the root of all evil. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs and sorrows. So, you know, there's something there's something in this idolatry of money that is a shared root with all sin. It has this common root. There's some uh, thing that the human heart is doing, the, sin, the fallen human heart is doing in sinfully loving money that is the same impulse leading him to sin in every other way that he sins. And I think that that's actually, you know, understanding what that is and how that works is, is one of the most... Interest, it's, it's very interesting because when you think about what money is, money is basically, you can turn it into anything. So money, in a sense, represents all human pleasure, security. Money is your shield and your reward. Money is your strong tower. Money is your banner. Money can, you know, you can turn it into Teslas or vacations or Money answers sex. everything. Money seems to do what only Proverbs. God can do. Yeah. So, so money, the love of money is like a concentrated form of idolatry. I think is is the point of that verse. Mm. Yeah, when you preached a sermon on that in Proverbs, yeah, that was one of the most helpful sermons that I had ever heard because that that verse I had been taught just along with uh, I'm sure everybody else this pietistic notion that money is uh, evil, just mm. is absolutely evil. Yep. You should despise it, and the the best thing to do would be to give it all away. Yeah, just get rid of it. Yeah, to get rid of it all, to Francis chant it and just sell everything and go to Asia. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ooh. on missions. No, Ooh, seriously, we that's what he names. did. We He's, name and names. No, he literally did that. Yeah, yeah he literally did that. Uh, so so that's how I had always had this idea of money. Like, I have money in my bank account, and I give some of it to the church, but I feel dirty because I still, I still have some, and I work for it. And it's almost like everything that I did uh, in gaining income and 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 providing for my family was tainted with evil mammon that was coming into my bank account. And I think this is one of the rubs that I've talked about in the Hard Man podcast, but why men are flocking away from the American church in droves is because it's basically like, hey, come give us your money for missions and for my salary, Mm -hmm. but also everything you do is dirty and unholy. Yeah. And so we need your money on the one hand, and it's bad, Unless you're giving it to us for missions or your tithe or whatever. And so I think a lot of American men have said, 
well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Hang, hang on. <laughs> and, and I think what we need <laughs> to, to be re- getting played. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we need to recover <laughs> is, you know, pastors ought to be telling their men, hey, yeah, go righteously make a lot of money and find different ways to invest it in the kingdom. And here's what I think a lot of people will miss. A tithe is part of the investment in the kingdom, but so might be starting a media company. So might be starting a, a business that can be run and can profit people by, say, like truth-telling, mm. right? It doesn't all have to be uh, missions and tithe. Yeah, so maybe, yeah, I actually like that. It's it's almost like, you, you know how some people, um, it, the, the way that they taught about something like sex, again, sex is a good one to help us understand money because I think it, it helps us to see how the idolatry of money is working in a way that is more intuitive to us. People have wrongly taught things like, you know, sex is dirty and gross, so save it for the one you love. (laughs) They've done the same thing with money. They're like, money is evil and bad, so give it all to us, says the church. (laughs) They're like, um, there's some kind of error. And I think to to focus us in on this first question here, that the errors really run in two directions. There, There is a ditch on one side of the road that is like an ascetical ditch. And there's a ditch on the other side of the road that you mentioned that's like, the prosperity theology ditch. So let let's talk through those two, starting with the ascetic ditch. We've we've circled around it. Where 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 do we see this? What does it look like, and how does it get wealth, money, and space wrong? This ascetical ditch. Yeah, it, it's actually interesting that Eric brought up Marxism, because you can see how that fits so well with the ascetic yeah. teachings of the church. Because we automatically have suspicions of wealthy people, yeah. don't we? Mm-hmm. I mean, you just expect that if somebody has wealth, that they've received that wealth through unjust gains. Yeah, they must have that stolen used, it from someone. They've stolen it from someone or they've used people yeah. in order to get that or taken advantage of people to get those things. Mm. And so you can see how that then the the idea that, well, I, I don't have a lot of that, so then therefore I am more righteous mm-hmm. would be some sort of pietistic you know, warm, fuzzy feeling that you'd get yeah. by by being able to justify why you actually suck at making money. <laughs> you know, uh, but the ascetics, they, essentially, w- when we say that, we're saying people that uh, historically through different movements have denied pleasure in some form or another. So you see this a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned sex, like they would abstain from sex, even as far as like uh, foods that tasted good, they would eat dried foods or paste, you know, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And they would take vows of poverty, Things like that, and so you can see how some how some teachings the the in the Pietistic movement would definitely emphasize not having things and not taking pleasure in the things of the world mm-hmm. and denying the things of the world in in this specific way yeah. would be uh, would be righteous. Well, I, w- I was even thinking as you were talking about that, uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, so he made a lot of money off the Narnia books, but in his biography, we're told that he gave away like a hundred percent of the profits. Mm. And so when he died, what he left to his kid was like a jacket, a pair of slacks, and like $32. Wow. But that was, in the book at least, it was kind of portrayed as like, that's the really Christian thing to do, is die with nothing and pass on nothing. Well, then you, then you, the problem is then you read the Proverbs and it's like, well, actually the godly thing to do is leave an inheritance to your children. We're explicitly told that. Yeah. Um, so again, it plays into that ascetic, you know, sort of the, you know, like a monk, you know, we should all die with nothing, having mm. never tasted pleasure. And we should buy into the no- the Puritan notion that, uh, you know, somewhere someone is enjoying themselves, the nagging suspicion that someone is doing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in the same way that 
the, the ascetic is making an error where he, it's like, just like God did not give the good gift of sex for the sake of these ruinous pursuits of pornography, fornication, adultery, but to bless his people with fruitfulness, pleasure, joy, children, you know, those gifts. He doesn't give people money for the sake or, and, and money, like when you say money, like, well, God didn't give money directly. God made a world that was full of wealth. I mean, the garden was full of gold. God intended for it to be used as money, like from the beginning. He he didn't give his people money for the sake of the ruinous pursuits of self-sufficiency, idolatry, greed, materialism, but he gave those good gifts so that people could enjoy his creation, love their neighbors, mm. build communities that would preach about this radically generous father who made all things, who blesses his people, and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the ascetic gets it wrong by actually ending up maligning God's character as a good father in saying all of these good things you've made that wealth basically represents, those are, those are actually bad things. When you said very good over the whole creation, father, you were wrong. These are dangerous things. And, and, and it's like, they're dangerous to the sinner, but they are actually powerful to the righteous, which is why, I mean, asceticism cannot stand up to the whole of scripture. You have verses like Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of Yahweh makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Meaning that if you find sorrow along with wealth, human beings are the ones who brought all of that sorrow mm. to the equation. God added no sorrow to it. In fact, when God blesses in a normative way, Generally speaking, and you, again, read the covenant blessings in the book of Deuteronomy, read the Proverbs, uh, you'll, you'll see that one of, the, one of the side effects of God blessing his people as they live at peace with the world he made and the laws that he made uh, by grace and through faith is that it, they actually tend to gain wealth, money, and space. These are just actually good, natural, uh, not, not even natural, but side effects that God built in to the thing. You can even see that through the patriarchs. Yes, absolutely. Part of God's blessing was wealth. Yeah. I mean, just reading through Genesis to my boys, and it's just astounding how much wealth that these guys had. Yeah. You know, when it was Jacob and he was trying to appease Esau, mm. and as a gift, he was giving just amazing amounts of livestock <laughs> yeah. to this guy. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm I'm close enough to the farming world and the farming community that I know that each of these animals is a, a rather substantial dollar amount. And in, in total, money. it's yeah. unbelievable. Yes. And that was just a gift out of his excess essentially. Yes. And so this even comes along with God's blessings. Yeah. You see a guy, it's, it's funny that we record this episode today because it's August 2nd, 2022 year of our Lord, as we record this and, and a guy by the name of Ron, Ronald Sider, died just like four or five days ago. He died on July 27th. And Ronald Sider was essentially what you might call like a, a Christian Marxist or a Christian socialist. Or he, he wrote some very popular books in the, the late 20th century on uh, Christianity and wealth and things like this that were very much socialistic, very much aiming for that kind of thing. Evangelicals for Social Action was a think tank that he founded. And um, I'm very thankful to Mr. Sider because he actually led, uh, his work led to the, the writing of one of my favorite books, a book that you should read on this subject by David Chilton, 
uh, entitled Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. This is a, a book that would take the topic of this episode and expand it to like a, a glorious proportions. You should all read it if you haven't already. And Chilton wrote that book in response to Cider. I think you read that and Joe Rigney's The Things of Earth, and you'll get two great um, correctives to both of these ditches, to the ditch of the ascetic uh, who essentially maligns God's goodness and saying that the gift itself is bad. It's bad and we should avoid it. That the answer to wealth is the avoidance of the thing, just like some of the early church fathers got sex wrong by saying or implying that the answer to sexual sin was to avoid sex or put enormous shackles beyond what God had put in his goodness on his law around sex. They said, we need 50 other laws. We need to restrict sex now to, you know, only for procreation. And it's only on this time, uh, you know, you can't do it on this feast day. You can't have sex on the Sabbath. You can't do all, you know, all these different sorts of things. Uh, the ascetic wants to do the same with money. He says the answer is to avoid it. Yeah, you see this actually to even push a hot button a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You see this pietistic, ascetic sort of uh, instinct also in alcohol today. Absolutely. Because the Psalms say that God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. Mm-hmm. That's in the Bible. It says that. Yes. And so in a fear of committing the sin of drunkenness, mm-hmm. we've put up barriers around yep. in teetotaling purity movements that, that would prevent yeah. you from you know consuming alcohol at all. Saying, no, actually, God, your, your gift of wine is not a gift, it's a curse. When I drink it, it makes me happy. And so it's like, I, sh- I feel I, that's, I should probably not do this thing. I'm like, well... I'm sorry, that's what he made it to do. It's supposed to make you feel kind of cheerful. It's a design feature. So, you know, have a glass of wine with dinner and be cheerful. <laughs> you see this in, we've talked a lot about in this season about pietism. Um, we've talked a lot about dispensationalism, which again, if you think that the uh, great tribulation and the secret rapture of the church and the calamitous end of the world is going to end, like if you really thought the world was going to end in 1988, <laughs> then why would you... Why would you spend all this time building something like a Christian school that requires wealth, money, and space? Why would you build a Christian business? Like, there'd be no point. So you see how some of these errors work together to create the ascetic impulse. Yeah, and I think, so that's that's really the ascetic impulse, yeah. uh, which is one ditch. And Eric, you'd mentioned the other ditch, which would be the, the prosperity gospel, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And so that's like the name it, claim it, give me the stuff, Right. And so that's the other ditch. Could you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I would even connect that, Dan. You're absolutely right to something like Job's friends. Well, if you've been righteous, then you wouldn't have lost everything, mm-hmm. uh, which included his wealth, his health, um, any form of human prosperity. In that case, obviously, we know hindsight being 2020, thanks to the book of Job, he, he was righteous. God yeah. said that he was. So one of the things that we, we look to is how covenant promises work and how they are generally true. But that does not mean that righteous people won't suffer. Mm -hmm. Obviously, those things happen. What prosperity teaching will generally say, and it comes from a few different camps, is that if you trust God, you'll be rich. Mm. And it simplifies everything pretty much to that. You'll be rich and healthy. And if you die, it's because, you know, you die poor. It's because you didn't have enough faith. Mm. So it's an oversimplification of really proverbial wisdom and a misapplication, which, Brian, you— like R2K people have actually kind of picked this up and, and gone a totally different way with it. But there is a truth here that we have to say that's, you know, prosperity preaching is is wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Prosperity preaching is wrong 
because what it does uh, is it misunderstands instead of having a good father who gives good gifts and that there being a normative pattern to those good gifts, like that you see in the Proverbs things like whoever is diligent, whoever works diligently will receive, you know, will be receive wealth. Basically, I'm trying to make like trying to find this. Oh, yeah, here we go. Proverbs 10, 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So there's the principle. All right? So you understand that principle. God made a world where a slack hand causes poverty, but if you work diligently, it tends to result in wealth. Where God is a good father, he loves to bless his people, and as his people follow him and obey his laws and his rules and and you know live at peace with reality, that it tends to result in blessing that even has... A monetary side to it, literally. Like if you obey God's law, he he delights to to actually give money to you. Like that's that's there. Even things like generosity in Scripture, Jesus says, "Give and it will be given back to you." Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So it's like th- there are those principles there. The prosperity gospel gospelist, what they do is instead of a good father who gives good gifts so that even when we obey him and you know are at peace with him and then we get suffering faith looks at that suffering and says this is better this is the best gift that god could have given me right mm. now okay the prosperity gospelist can't say that because he's made faith into an instrumental sort of you know to use mark driscoll's phrase a a stick and he's made god into a piñata and if you whack the pinata of God with the stick of faith, then good things fall out. So it's a manipulative. It's like the pagans who said, if I sacrifice enough blood, the sun, sun will come up kind of view. Whereas a Christian understands the general pattern and is preserved from those errors. The prosperity gospel is ends up making the gifts into the God mm. and God, just the means to get their real God right with the stick of faith. And so everything's just flattened out. You would then all of a sudden look at people who are ill and say, well, you didn't have enough faith. People who are poor didn't have enough faith. But of course, the scriptures have righteous poor people, righteous rich people, unrighteous rich people, and unrighteous poor people. There's all four categories represented. And so wealth itself is not this univariate equation by which you can measure the righteousness of a person. You just can't. It doesn't work like that. Mm. The world is more complex than that because God's providential plan is more complex than that. What God is doing is much more intricate than that one-to-one sort of math. God is doing calculus and prosperity gospelists make him, you know, do simple addition poorly. And I think it's a really good point, Brian, because when when we're talking about we have to deal with wisdom, you know, with wealth in mm-hmm. wisdom, okay, that means that you're going to have to do some calculus. Yeah. Right, we can't just have simplistic platitudes that we fall back on. Right, we're actually going to have to think through these issues pretty carefully. Yes, Jesus was poor and righteous. Jesus is not poor now. <laughs> like some people make this mistake, where they're like, "Yeah, we got to be poor like Jesus." I'm like, G- right now, somebody actually said that to he, me. They're he, like, "He's not poor right now." Jesus owns nothing, and I just responded. I said, "Jesus owns a cattle on a thousand hills." Literally, he owns. He owns all, everything. All of it. You. Included, by the way. All kingdoms. <laughs> he's, he's received, Daniel 7, 13, and 14 has happened. He's been presented before the Ancient of Days, and he has received a kingdom which is everlasting and whose dominion will have no limitation. I mean, so it's obviously too simple to try and 
veer into either of these ditches and and you will end up with errors. Um, I, I think that, you know, Dan, you had talked about before we recorded this episode and had even kind of written some notes here on some some points that I think have also, you know, illustrated one of the ways that we get this wrong. And it really starts to bring us into our second point here that this failure of theology has made Christians who are very good at getting conquered. You know, one of the ways, for example, that we've seen this, and maybe you could speak to it more, is just, you know, we've 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 learned and we've just kind of in a docile way gone along with sending our women to work to go and have two income households. All of our women are working. In 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 one way, that's actually ch- chasing wealth in a sinful way. It's it's fundamentally part of it is getting this issue wrong. So you know maybe we could talk about that a little bit as we move into this. Christians are very good at getting conquered section. Yeah, I think that's a really. Let me back up for a moment. Okay? Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, what I really think we should frame that part of the conversation with, you know, women going back to work, is the due to the teaching of the church, mm-hmm. especially towards men that show up. You know, that are there's not as many men in, that are in there. churches. Yeah, is is that uh, ambition is actually also dirty. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ambition is something that men should not have. You know, you should be uh, meek, you know, and you should be lowly. Yeah. Like you said, like Jesus, but the way that they've pictured Jesus is, is more like the, the really, you know, pastel painting, holding a lamb sort of Jesus instead of the world conquering King that, like we said, owns cattle on a thousand Hills. Well, and that's the reality, too, just to interject that if you're going to be a successful business owner, I think this is where the rub is with the church, too. You got to kind of be a brave man. You got to be a risk taker. You got to, you're going <laughs> to yeah. be the kind of man, if you're really good at, like, say, owning property, running businesses, being successful in the economy, it, it won't sit well with a lot of the priest-type people mm. because they'll look at you and they say, well, you're like David out on the field shedding blood, and I'm in here in holy places offering sweet, fragrant prayers. Mm. And and there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, we've lost actually manly pastorates yeah. um, because pastors are also conquering uh, spiritually. They're leading their people into spiritual warfare every week, all those things, church militant. But but I think what a lot of this to me comes down to is the guys who are falling the pietism trap. You know, wealth is bad. I don't yeah. go after it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but let's get let's get down to brass tacks. These are lazy guys who don't want to spill blood on the field. And look, like building a business... Yeah, I've done startups. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Yeah, they don't want to take risk. It is so weighty, and and you're like, I could pour a couple years of my life into this thing, and it might fail. Yep. And so a lot of guys are like, Jesus wants me to watch Netflix and spend every spare moment doing so while being calm and nice. Meanwhile, like, yeah, if you're doing a startup, if you're running all these businesses, chances are you might lose your temper a time or two. Yeah, and I think part of it, you have to look at at the state of the church, the shepherds of the church, the, the pastors. Yeah, ambition in a pastor can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, right? Yeah, ambition sure. is transient; it just depends. What are you ambitious for? Yeah. What's it aimed at? You know, yeah, what's it aimed at? But yeah. because we don't have the theological grounding to have good ambition, ambition ends up looking like the seeker sensitive mega churches, multi churches, franchise model churches, essentially just taking the corporate world, bringing it into the church because that's the only way that they know how to be ambitious. And then they just multiply and make themselves like some 
Warren Buffett-esque CEO-type figure. That's really what Willow Creek was. Bill Hybels would always talk about how he, I could cut it as a CEO anywhere. Like, that was really important to him. But I also think of books like uh, Dave Harvey when he, I think it, uh, he was still Sovereign Grace at this point. But he wrote a book called Ambition. I think the book, the book was overall pretty good. But one of the things that made me think of is, like, we have to really wring our hands to say, like, is it okay to be ambitious? Yeah. Like, you have to do all this, like, you know, cheese grater on your soul to get an answer. That And, and the bottom line is, like, I feel comfortable saying to my kids, go get them. Yeah, m- one of my pastoral goals, I've actually said this from the pulpit. It's been a minute. I need to say it again. One of my pastoral goals is to inflame in the men a desire and a passion for glory. Yes. Where they would understand rightly what glory is and what it's for. It's not just their no, self-glorification. The glory of a thing is that thing when it, it is at peace mm. with what God has made it to be and do. Mm. So a man is glorious when he is for Christ's crown and kingdom, loving his wife, raising children, loving his neighbor economically, which looks like expanding the economic pie. Doing excellent work. Doing excellent work that will cause him to stand before kings. Um, being a courageous risk taker for the right things. Being wise as serpent, innocent as a dove. When a man has range like that, and then he applies, his, uh, he applies those gifts which God has given him in a way where he's not just saying, but every, anyone could look at his life and say, that guy is trying to take two talents that God gave him and return 10 to his king. That's what he's trying to do. And that man will win glory. He won't win the false glory that comes from men. Uh, that's not what he's aiming for. But he might win proper honor from other men. He might win respect of other men. But he's ultimately not aiming to build his own kingdom. He's aiming to build God's kingdom. But sometimes people think they mistake hard, masculine, risk-taking, courageous vocational work, and they mistake it for Babel building categorically, like where all of that is necessarily Babel building. It's like, no, it's not. We should want to raise our sons not to be lazy, worthless blobs of, of you know grown men who are like, well, at least I never accomplished something and risked being proud. Well, and you know, that's the interesting thing, because I, I remember like my teenage years being in church, we would always hear things about like, hey, you know, don't be a workaholic. Stop thinking your career is everything. Yeah. Almost never were you like, dude, get off your mom's basement couch. Stop watching Marvel movies and go do something. Yeah, your family's really struggling because you're making $26,000 a year and you want to have Work five harder. kids and have your wife stay at home and you're telling your wife her grocery budget is $217 a month to feed five kids dude, you're, you're denying the faith. You need to go make more money. Like, and I know there are situations, people always throw the, the asterisk. They'll be like, what about the guy who lost both feet in an accident at the mill? And one of his eyes got poked out, you know, when he was getting the mail for his wife, when she was pregnant. And, and then after that, he got a traumatic brain injury and he was, uh, you know, uh, an idiot. And so, uh, (laughs) you're being a legalist. I'm like, no, Paul says a man who doesn't provide for his family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So therefore, provide for your family. He's talking about money, guys. Like He's actually talking about feeding well, people. Yeah, so I will say, just as a preface to that, sure. I will give an asterisk. Because in the world we live in, you have, to, you have to be aware of the world we live in. Yes. And your salaried income, you take home 50%. 
right. of what you actually earn. At the And when you actually factor in property taxes, gas taxes, food oh, your, taxes. Yeah, your cell phone taxes, taxes, like all the taxes, yeah, just we, the breathing tax. You, yeah. you take home very little. So the government is making it very, very difficult for you to exist and to support your family, Absolutely. especially on one income. Yeah. But that's not an excuse. No, it's an explanation. That's an explanation. Yeah. It, it's just knowing that information actually should make you able to succeed. Yeah. So, well, that's thorns and thistles. That's the, you live in a cursed world. Yeah. A cursed world isn't just that the, the ground will bring forth weeds. It's also that people will be weeds. So you'll have to deal with cursed, sinful people. So Paul wouldn't look at, like, for example, a family being carried off into captivity in Babylon by the invading empire when they were, you know, a faithful covenant member and say, why aren't you providing for your family? You're, You're worse than, than an unbeliever. unbeliever. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Uh, and and that is that is a good, again. No, I King know Saul that's not what you're nuance. saying. It doesn't mean, though, it doesn't absolve you of responsibility. That's just an excuse. It doesn't. But it's reality. It and so reality. you need to have that is, information in mind and use ambition to say, okay, now that I know this, there are tax codes. Why do the wealthy people not pay taxes? Why, when Mitt Romney was running for president, did he only pay 13% in taxes? Why didn't Trump want to discloses tax statements. It's because they don't pay taxes because they know how to work the system. And so knowing that you should be able to figure that out, which is one of our applications later, but you should be able to game the system and be like uh, as, you know, crafty. It's like, you know, someone says, Hey, you know, to get into the, this unit in the military, this combat unit you want to join, you got to be able to run a six minute mile. And you're like, okay, great train, I can do my six-minute mile, and then they say, oh, you show up to run the mile for the test. They're like, oh, with a 40-pound weight vest on. Oh, okay, that's another factor. You're running the six-minute mile with a 50% weight belt on, to mix my metaphors here. You, you just are, because you're being robbed in a way that is five times worse, literally, I mean, than the, the tyrannical situation that God warned them about when he said, your kings will demand a tithe of your money a 10% tax if you have the kings like the nation surrounding you. And now we're like 5x that with <laughs> 50% in taxes. Is this where we get to talk about the people and the usury and the... <sighs> should I... I'll leave that one out. Uh, yeah. so, Maybe that'll be after hours. No, I, what we were talking about was women and, and work. Yeah, you and know what? I'm glad you guys church. brought this up because this is a theological error that has led. Effeminacy in men is a theological error um, as well as just teaching, training men yeah. to yeah, not a, have ambition. It's a trained thing. It's a virtue. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to say, you know, bringing this all around. I, I think what we really have to get at is that pastors and churches need to, number one, understand what men are facing. So, yeah. like, understanding inflation. Understanding what you're saying to men when you're saying, hey, you, you got to be a sole breadwinner so mom can come home. What are some actual ways you can make that happen? Because, you know, maybe working entry-level retail is not going to get that done. Right. But when we say to our men, and, and you have to pastorally, yeah. when you say to your men, you need to make more money, mm-hmm. I think it would be another thing to be able to point them in the right directions yes. with small business owners and, and, and resources to say, look, if you're faithful in a small thing, we can train you, we can teach you, we can help you, we can Absolutely. assist you so that you can get to a place where you're making more money. And I think this is where a lot of men get dis- discouraged is because a lot of pastors, A, they don't understand what men are facing. Right. And then they just say, well, you know, as long as you have a really good devotional time in the morning, though. Oh, yeah. But we do have to actually deal with inflation. You're going to have yeah. to. And here's the, here's what I've realized, too, and is my life has progressed, and I've spent more time around millionaire, billionaire types. I've realized 
they're in that position and they think differently about life and they're able to build wealth. So like right now, there are millionaires who are not even concerned about the inflation so much as they're like, you know, I've had several of them tell me like, look, God is doing a great work. Like we need to see where he's moving and invest our resources and build. Yeah. Which to me was crazy because it's like, wait, you're not crying about gas. Wait, you're not. You're right. So I think a lot of this too is about training men with the right mindset. This is not the time to retreat. This is the time to say, what can we be building to create and generate wealth? Yeah, in times of fear, it's especially important to be courageous and bold. Yes. And and so the wealthy see these things that would scare us, like gas prices going up or inflation happening. Opportunities. And, opportunity. Yeah. Exactly. That's information. People They're got wealthy during the Depression. Absolutely. They built yeah. their wealth through the Depression. Well, the, the rich get rich during recessions. Yes. That's is, right. Is the old trope. So with, one of the things with with this effeminate, you know, teaching that we've had in the church. Are you talking about the Fed? And when we say federal, we don't mean like federal theology, like covenant theology. We mean um, people who have appointed themselves the federal head of humanity and rob all of us by debasing the currency. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. I, so, so getting back to my, my, my main point, <laughs> thank you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Is that what? What is the idealized job then for these pastors? Oh. You know that are that are training your men. What is the ideal job? And we live around Hill Air Force Base, and so in the military industrial complex that supports it. That's correct. And so the ideal job is to work for the government or for a government contractor because you have almost no risk there. Cast iron benefits. Very you difficult you don't to get fired. You don't even actually actually have to work. Yeah, you have a benefits package that's worth conservatively in today's day forty or sixty thousand dollars. A lot of the time, by the time you actually add it up, if you were to go and get it yourself, pensions are in the millions. Yeah, by the time you're done, you work your twenty years. Very hard to get fired. My dad, um, you know, did twenty years in the Air Force, twenty years in the government after that, and and he's a hard worker. He's a he's a guy who's rises to the top and ends up leading people wherever he goes. And it's like you know, he's talked so many times about. How like Eric, you've you've led organizations now, where one of the ways that you've improved organizations is by firing people. Big time. You may not do that in the government. No, you're not. A, so it's it's the perfect ideal, platonic ideal of a job for this kind of risk averse, safetyism mindset. And yeah. we're saying safety third. What? Yeah. And the other <laughs> thing that I would say is when you think about the church. Part of this is when all your people are trained as men and leaders by the bureaucracy, Mm -hmm. corporate or government, one of the problems you tend to find is that then your elders become these risk-averse bureaucrats, Mm -hmm. right? You're actually safer if you just kick things up the chain or you pass the buck to somebody else. And so I think that one of the things when we're talking about wealth, we're also talking about the kind of men that we're going to raise in a community. Because I tell you, as a small business owner, when you have 15 people, 20 people, 30 people whose lives and families depend on you getting things together and things have to work and your products have to be delivered on time and your services do as well, there's a weight of responsibility. You become a different kind of man. Yeah. Uh, always think about the, there's a line in the Aeneid where he says, down deep they harden fast. Meaning when, when you're deep in the fires of hell, going through trials, men harden. Yeah. And so w- w- in all of this, we're really talking, wealth is about the men who build it, yeah. right? And what That's they build right. it for. Yep. And if I think you do it right and you train your men right to be wealth builders, that's one of the ways you're going to get hard men. That's right. I think we need to make a T-shirt that's just an Eric Kahn profile picture, like a, a portrait and profile that just says, it's like in the Aeneid. 
Yes. As the caption. Yeah, I think so. So we'll get our designers on. So that. so just a finishing up this this thing yeah. that I keep getting interrupted in, you know, Sorry. gloriously. Thank you for that. Is that like your life? But yeah, the thing life is, like, it's happening right now. Would you stop interrupting me while I am interrupting you? The the idea of just like keeping your head down, taking the safe job, yeah. taking the corporate job or the government job or whatever, is that functionally what you're doing, if you do work, is that you are building the house of pagans by playing it safe. You're building Ooh. somebody else's house. You're building somebody else's house. You end up being a slave to a pagan lord who is building wealth on your back. But it's a lot easier. It is a heck of a lot easier to do that. There's no risk, right? Brian, we were talking about this the other day with one of our friends, Trent, um, but we were talking about how the, when you, when you start a business, for example, Mm -hmm. like the the energy units, right? We're, yes, it's astronomical how much energy it takes. Mm -hmm. So really that's the other thing that like we're calling men to is, yeah, we have to do that. If we're going to build parallel economy outside of this, working for the, the pagan masters. Yep. Christendom Bible College offers a one-year certificate in the humanities for students who intend to pursue a degree or for students who prefer to begin their chosen occupations upon completion of our program. Older students who never attended college or who went to a college where the humanities were less robust will also find our program stimulating and suitable. Located steps from the Ohio River in the town of New Richmond, we're unaccredited in order to remain free to teach as our biblically-minded consciences demand. As servants of Christ, we won't wear the yoke of the woke. Instead, we stand on the shoulders of Christianity's giants, not to stew in nostalgia, but to see through the culture wars fall to the glorious days of a Christendom still to be built. Our exceptional faculty are committed to the historic, biblical foundations of our faith. Come be a part of Christendom Bible College. Visit us on the web at christendombiblecollege.org to learn more. While there, be sure to sign up for our email updates and receive your free three-chapter excerpt of our very own Dr. Frank J. Smith's new book, Race, Church, and Society. I think it's, it is important, though, because, and we'll talk about this later, is the what, what are you using wealth for? Yeah. Or what are you working for? Yeah. It's a really important thing. So Andrew Isker, in our interview, he said something that I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. If you work for a corporate job, you yeah. work for a pagan, you, you're, you're making you know, really good money at a government contractor. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're sinning necessarily. No, saying. I mean, you just have to be honest. Like, okay, what I'm doing here is I am plundering Egypt. Yes. Like I'm taking money, they're giving me a salary and I'm going to turn it into building the kingdom. Yeah, and and that's the point when when Jesus tells the parable. I think it's I'm speaking off the cuff here so I might be off in my details, but I think when Jesus tells the parable of the dishonest manager, he talks about how you can use basically like filthy lucre, like mammon, like money. This kind of like Un- like wealth that has been, you know, it's, it's dirty. It's gone through like, and actually that's all wealth, by the way. It's all touched by sin somewhere. Corruption somewhere. And yeah, he's, yeah. and they use it for the kingdom of, of God. Like, right. So, so that he's, Jesus is kind of lamenting in this parable that the sons of this age, he's talking about like these pagans, these absolute sinners are so cunning. Like they can turn a prophet 
on literally anything. This dishonest manager, he's getting fired. And so he starts writing off debts for all of the millionaires that owe his master money so that he'll be like Somebody will take the big in. chungus he, in the court wherever he, he goes. He doesn't want to dig ditches. He doesn't yeah. want to dig ditches. They're like, he's like, I'm too old. I'm too, I, I'm, I'm a weakling. I can't dig ditches. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to ingratiate myself with every millionaire in town. And yeah, he becomes the big chungus of the court. Like, I'm stop just saying surprised that. you're got the big chungus. That was for Ben. That was for Ben Garrett. Well, no, so Proverbs 12, you, you, you had read Proverbs 10. I'm trying to class this up. You yeah. make it so hard. The, big uh, chungus. the hand of the diligent will rule, <laughs> yes. while the slothful will be Ooh. put to forced labor. Yeah, that's in the Bible, guys. Like God said that. Another yeah. Yeah. be diligent. I just I just wanted to tie it into your dishonest manager thing because he's like, wait a minute, I don't want to dig ditches. Yeah, I don't want my hand oh. to be put to forced labor. And, so he was yeah. diligent. And and granted, like, and that was the point though, is that yeah. he's, Jesus was saying like, how much more should the sons of light should Christians be cunning and righteous? Like, not to be. I'm not saying go start a confidence game. In a, like a mafia in your local area, and be like, they told the King's Hall, they told us that we should just go get rich by whatever means necessary. Yeah. So I started, I started selling insurance to people and threatening to burn their businesses down if they didn't pay me. So I mean, it worked. I'm very wealthy now. No, you you need to understand what wealth is for. Another proverb that I think is very important. You've already mentioned this. This principle, Proverbs twenty one seventeen: Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Like these dudes that you that Eric's talking about that are like a lot of them, some of them inherit their money from family, you know, whatever. But a lot of these guys who start businesses and, you know, they end up with $100 million in their 40s because of their wise management and cunning stewardship. It's like they're driving trucks that look like Pastor Dan's truck, and that's not a compliment. It's, it's not a nice vehicle. No, it's it's not. It's, it's, it's not, not if I've had to take the engine apart multiple several times. Several times, yeah. right? Like if, or may, they don't they don't stoop as low as to drive – the Toyota Sienna that I had my wife driving for a while. To be fair, it looked better when I when when we started using it. It was it was us. So so I wanna I wanna transition a little bit. So yeah. so we've kind of tangentially discussed this idea of like, well, Christians should be going out and, and taking dominion and starting businesses and taking risks. And we're gonna talk more about that practically how to how to start how to take the first step in a little bit, but I've heard this criticism. So I, I said, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're playing it safe, you're working in the corporate world and you're just trying to keep your head down just so that you can get home, watch Netflix, you know, buy a nice car, go on a nice vacation just so that you can retire and, and live, uh, you know, just die, yeah. you know, in Florida on the beaches. Uh, don't waste your life, John Piper. Anyway. So I've heard some people say that there is no such thing as a Christian business, because I've said there's pagan businesses. Yeah. I'm also saying there are Christian businesses. Right. And there are some people that just like, no, that's actually not a thing. There is no such thing as a Christian business. Have you ever heard this? Oh, man. People say so this, this about R2K stuff. Yeah. It's like, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian business. And they're like, because a Christian is a regenerate human being. I'm like, listen, guys, you, you can use the word Christian as an adjective. Like it's you can do that. Like we do that. There's such thing as Christian ethics and non-Christian ethics. There is such thing as a Christian business, and we're not saying that the business is a regenerate human being. 
We're using the word like a normal word. I get so annoyed by this criticism. So the business it's is such regenerate. A, it's such a it's such a midwit take where they're just like, I'm so smart. I have 110 IQ. There's no technically a Christian is a regenerate human being, and I'm technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. So therefore, you're an idiot. Checkmate, Theo, bro. And I'm like, you know what? You're such an idiot. Christian can be used as an adjective. Like it makes me it. Nobody says that like, oh, that I'm that sorry. sacrifice was demonic. Oh, I'm like, sorry. No, it's de- not demonic. De- it was just a sacrifice. Yeah, de- demons are <laughs> demons are ancient, maleficent, undying spiritual beings, fallen angels. They're not sacrifices. Therefore, it can't be a demonic sacrifice. Nobody does that. I just want to. It's like toast. I'm versus trying not French to. French toast. No, they're not. There's different. no such thing as French no toast. Toast is toast. Toast is, is it, bread toast that's been baked. Be Again. <laughs> Actually, when my toast is Morals burned, can't be Christian. I just call it French Canadian toast. Because this guy French Canadian or Chippewa? Oh, yes. Yes. Because you yes. guys are always More burning. Jokes. Burning More jokes. More jokes. Okay. <laughs> what we're jokes. talking about here is not one of the, the reasons. Canadians. I'm going to tie this in so beautifully if you guys are ready for this segue. It's going to be like a perfectly cut dovetail joint by Brandon Dyer, dovetail king of Carpenter, king of Maine, whatever his name is. Literally gave him that name, so I should know. This is my segue. This is one of the reasons why Christians are so good at getting conquered. Mm. Is because they're like, business, that's that's not a part of the kingdom. That's out there in the common kingdom. Like, just go do whatever. That's like natural law. Don't bring the Bible into this stuff. Like, it doesn't really matter to the... You know, the advance of the Christian mission. The Great Commission has nothing to do with wealth, money, and space. That's just Noahic covenant stuff. Go do your thing. And uh, th- this is one of the, this is quite frankly one of the reasons that Christianity, that Christians of late have been so adept. Like one, our spiritual gift, if we took the spiritual gift test, it would say you have the spiritual gift of being conquered by pagans. Oh, <laughs> that's well, your spiritual I, gift. Yeah, I think it only wor- it only works when you're living. In the lap of luxury. Exactly. And ease and pleasure. So, like, at some point, and we're starting to see this, like, through the last couple of years, look, y- y- people were pushed up against a wall, and yeah. it's like you had to make choices. And I think the best way out of this is honestly just to, to read the Bible like a blue-collar Christian. And what I mean by that is I feel like intellectuals all the time are outsmarting themselves. Yeah. Like, of course you can be a Christian business. You can run it on Christian principles and be faithful yes. to God in your business. And well, I'm a Christian, and I only hire Christians, and we operate Christianly. Yeah, exactly. And we use our money to do Christian stuff. Yeah, exactly. You're so a Christian business. I, I think just in a blue-collar way, you can be like, look, at face value, we can obviously do that. Yeah. And like Brian said, sometimes the best thing we can do is just sneer at people and say, you're an idiot. Of, I mean, of course you can do that. It's usually, and then it's, we ignore yeah. them, and then we build our business, and then we just we just say, "Oh, that's anyway," and then we just keep, anyway, we yeah. keep building our Christian business. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Christians are wildly good at getting conquered. Let's let's talk a little bit more about this. Like when we're when we're thinking about like what is the kind of economic thinking that gets you conquered? Well, yeah, if you don't explicitly have the missio day in mind when you're doing yeah. a business, let's say you are a business owner. And you're like, yeah, there is no such thing as a Christian business. And so I'm just going to kind of operate based on my, you know, my MBA and, and, and uh, whatever podcast you listen to that's on business. And so you recruit like you would uh, in, in some pagan industry and you, you, you have a, a certain uh, mission statement that is fairly pagan. I mean, you are being conquered. The walls are down. The pagans are in the building, yeah. and they're running the ship. You have just 
had mutiny orchestrated by yourself. Yes. And so what ends up happening is that you will lose the business. You have no control then over the virtue of the business and what it's trying to yeah. accomplish. Two, two examples? Yeah. yeah two yeah. examples of this. One of them, again, from a recent conversation with King's Hall listener, who is a very successful businessman, and uh, from a family of success. So this is kind of in his, in his blood. And he was talking about a, a, a multi, I think it was a, a telecommunications company that was very, I mean, medium-sized company in this world, but to us, huge, you know, like quarter of a billion dollar company right? That was Christian. Basically, they were Christians. They had Bible verses on the wall. You walk in and you knew that you were in a space where Christians were in charge. And the owners sold the company to Samsung. And and the question that was asked of these Christians who made a ton of money was, what are they going to do with the walls? Like, you made, a, you made a bunch of money, great. Like, and I'm sure you can do great things with that money. Not disparaging that, but, but the thing you built that was producing... And, and could continue to produce income and employ people and make a difference in the lives of many other Christians, you just sold the pagans. Another example, uh, and I'm not going to name names on any of these, but a, a, a guy that built a business and um, like a very successful business. This is These are real examples, by the way. We're not making these up. And hired a bunch of people in, in the community to work at the business. You know, Christian men who were like, yes, finally we get to work for this company that's a Christian company doing good work. And they weren't a Christian company because they were selling Jesus junk because they were selling like, <laughs> like Sunday school testament rewards, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, little mints with verses on them and stuff. Testaments. No, they, yeah, yeah, they, those are great. They were just, <laughs> they were just providing a need. This is what the economy is made out of people. It's made out of human needs. It's the love of neighbor applied to providing your neighbor with things they need and want that will improve their lives in an exchange that's mutually beneficial. That's the economy. It's just the first, you know, the greatest commandments applied vocationally. So built this business, tons of men working there in the community, whole community kind of, you know, buoyed up by it. Obviously the church is being benefited because here's these godly men with good jobs that are providing for their families and giving to the church and schools and all this stuff's happening. And then, you know, the, the leadership of that company decided to sell it. Again, decided to sell the company to pagans. You know, it made a ton of money. And then everything seems okay. Like, hey, these this is a good sale. They're not going to like fire all the Christians or anything. Yeah, but then COVID happens. And guess what the big company that bought them did? If you don't get the vax, you're in trouble, right? So all of a sudden, in, in an event that could not easily have been just foreseen, the, 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 you, you got to believe that I think the, the, people who sold this business I have in mind regret that they did this because that's an example of Christians getting conquered hmm. where you had this great thing that you had built with your blood, sweat, and tears. Could have passed it on. And could have passed it on, could have continued to expand. And, and look, I'm, I'm not, I haven't built a business worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars. So it's, I'm not claiming to know all the temptations or even all of the ins and outs of all these decisions, but when Christians think this time, these short-term five years instead of 500-year kind of things, as you know, Dan wrote in our notes, that's one way that I think Christians, that this, the type of men who will hear this episode, and maybe some of you will build businesses like that, fully expect that to be the case, but you got to be careful that you don't fumble the ball on the one-yard line, mm. right? Don't fumble the ball on the one-yard line. Convert, like, and that means through the generations. 
Yeah, that's really good. So I, I mean, we can move on from Christian businesses uh, to Christian families. So yeah. Christian families are really good at getting conquered as well. We've talked about public schooling before. Like, you want to get conquered? Just send your generations to the pagans to be discipled as a pagan. Yeah. And surprise, they're pagans now, well, and you've lost your pagans. generations. But another thing that that people do is that they spend their inheritance that is for the generations, mm-hmm. not for them, not supposed to be for themselves, but they spend the inheritance of their grandchildren on themselves. Yeah. In some sort of retirement. Yep. Or nursing home. Or, or nursing in a home. nursing home. Yeah. Those are the two areas. So you, you retire and you do your dream. You do the RV across the country thing. Yeah. And I mean, people are free to do these things. It, it really, again, it's a principle. It's a principle that needs to be applied. It's the way you do it. Yeah. It's the way you do it. Yeah. What are you doing this for? So if, so this inheritance for your generations are completely squandered on your RV trip across the U S or your river boat tours in Europe or whatever the heck it is, get crazy. It ends up being spent there. And then when you get too old to do that, then you get put into a home because you don't want to inconvenience your kids or maybe your kids are unwilling to take you in. And then the nursing home will take bleed you absolutely dry at 20 grand a month until you have no money. Can I play boomers advocate here? Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear boomers advocate. I earned that money and I worked harder than you, you stupid millennial. (laughs) So I've actually heard this. Then I would say, I don't want your damn money. I'll build my own kingdom. <laughs> yeah. The generations start with me. You will be forgotten. But but it is interesting. I mean, it really gets into this issue of, well, part of it is, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's just selfishness. I exist for me and my pleasure. Well, yeah, it is selfishness. It's also no instruction. Yeah. And, like, how and should you think? Me. Yeah, it's, it's weird because I actually, so the first time, I had never heard about inheritance in the church in, I don't know, like 15 years, like seminary. We didn't talk about that. The first time I had ever read about it was in a Joel Salatin book. And I remember asking a friend about that. I was like, do you think inheritance, like do, do parents owe their kids inheritance? Like, is that, is that important? Is that a good thing? And, uh, he had me start reading. I think I was reading some stuff from, uh, he just died actually, but like Marshall Foster uh, on generational thinking. Mm. Um, so and, and I, Foster was talking about like, um, you know, 500-year plans. He, he was talking about things like, and I think he's influenced Doug Wilson, if I'm not mistaken. How can you start thinking in terms of, okay, when Abraham was given the promise to, to Moses, you're 400 years, some, somewhere in that ballpark? Yeah, before, the, before his descendants were going to set foot in the land and start conquering it, right. 400 years. So, so you're talking about like that, well... You know, what is, how many generations is that? Ten. Ten generations total. Yeah, I mean, that's not something you're going to see it's in your own lifetime. Yeah. So I think it's it's that, too, getting people to think like this. Yeah, it's as far away as my family immigrating to North America from but France. me buying a $300,000 RV. Canada. And they, going around the country. Well, North like, America. Okay, that's fair. That's Canada fair. to be. I, the French, right yeah. French lady. Did you go to public school? That, what? Did you go to public school? Of course I went to public school. Okay, yeah, Canada is yeah, in everybody North America. Everybody knows Dan went to public Canada, school. Canada, I don't, let me mansplain this to you. Canada is yeah. in North America. Yeah, I know it's in, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to. Just, yeah, you just right, wanted to call my ancestors prostitutes. Prostitutes, again. yeah. Anyway, moving on. I like the fact that I got interrupted this by Dan. Yeah, now we interrupted you, Eric. I got interrupted by Dan, who's always in, in the interrupter. They interrupted me. Now he's the interruptee. Now he's interrupting. That's fair. I will take that's that fair. criticism. No, no, you're the interruptee. He's the interrupter. Okay, yeah. keep going. To we just need, let's settle this in the parking lot. 
I don't want to fight. I said <laughs> I would accept lot. that responsibility and that accusation. Yeah. Dang it. Dan I just took it. responsibility. I own it. Dang, Dang it. it. So really cuts Dan, the feet we, out of We money. were talking about RVs, new cars. Um, really crappy patio homes. Well, it, it, you know what? In defense of boomers. <laughs> yeah. When you've been taught wrong... Wrong theology, it will lead to wrong to wrongopraxis. Like you will not practice <laughs> rightly. And then when you're taught wrongly, it's highly likely that your children will be disciples since they were discipled by you. They will also be thinking wrongly. And so they will not be the type of people that are also thinking rightly about wealth money space. So you're like, why would I give them an inheritance of productive assets? They don't know what to do. It'd be like the dog that caught the fire truck. He's like, what do I do with it? Well, you know? So it's 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 a it gets amplified through the generations if you don't think rightly about I this. I want to ask a pastoral qu- question. You know, yeah. you guys are my pastors. Did you know that? I, I, I am aware. You okay. are a member of the church, and I am your pastor. Every okay, day I so get up, you. I say in the mirror, you are Eric Kahn's pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Today is the day to be a hard man. <laughs> you got to be a hard man. That's actually that's actually terrifying. <laughs> Love it. Or he will not respect you. So then I, I say I'm gonna record say, myself doing that in the morning. I say, you will eat the meats, you will lift the weights, you will parent your children, you will, you will take dominion today. You and won't eat the bugs. You I won't hi- live in the pod. It's how I hype myself up. You will live in a spacious rambler style house with four thousand square feet and a a, 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 gr- a garden growing in your backyard. You will have a wife that wears a dress. You will impregnate her. You, you will you will get the ducks from the park. <laughs> I have 400 ducks. <laughs> they don't want you to know that they don't want you to If I let my ducks go, I will have 400 ducks. Did I tell you guys? I sold almost 40 <laughs> ducks last year Dan, just for babies. Dan is the meme. He's been stealing ducks from the park oh. for years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't know that was a thing, by the way. So in 20, 2012, no. yeah. I emailed Weber County Park System. Yeah. Because I was walking through the parks and I'm like, there's so many dang domestic ducks in here. Yeah. Can I take the ducks? You asked. You I asked the, forgiveness, not permission. I have the email. What did yeah, they I should have just taken it. Did they it. say, sir, you, of course you may not catch They never the replied. Duck. Which oh, means yes. I thought you were trolling me. <laughs> that's a, I, as far as I'm concerned, that's permission. I mean, that was 10 years ago. What were we talking about? I have yeah, no idea. So I was going to ask a oh, pastoral, pastoral question. <laughs> yeah. Can you go ahead and. Oh, uh, yes. Hey, Eric. That was rich, though. Eric, as your pastor, go ahead. Oh yeah, that I'd like to hear this. Thank you. Very yeah, soothed by your therapist. Your I'm gonna let me voice. get my pastor voice out. It's Eric, back I here. want you to ask me the question. Oh my! Uh, yes, nine one one. I'd like I to report a, a murder. murder. <laughs> I'm about to murder a guy. Please come quickly. No, but uh, in all seriousness, one of the questions that I've had guys ask me a lot because I I see this a lot happening. Not so much boomers who are like, "Hey, how do I get how do I get my kids to buy into this multi generational view?" But what I've heard a lot of is is guys in younger generations saying, "Hey, I really want this," but mm-hmm. then I go talk to my, you know, boomer parents, and they're like, "Screw you guys! Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm just going to go to the golf course." Right? How, how do you, do you counsel do? that guy? Because part of it is like, well, we can't kidnap our parents, and no, if we, you're in that situation, we we've we've had this conversation with so many families in the church, young men, young families. Like, what do I do with my parents who just they they're Christians, but and and they really they are Christians. They're members in churches. They're you know, but they just they are classically discipled in the the boomerism, you know. So what do I do? And and what what I tell them like relentlessly is, you need to remember what your duties are to your parents. 
They're responsible for their duties to you. If they fail in those duties, you don't respond as their inferior because you are. We're, we're Presbyterians. Like we believe in superior, inferior relationships where in, in a genuine sense, in a hierarchical sense, my parents, my in-laws are in a position of superiority to me where honor is due in one direction in a way it's not due in the other direction. They have their own commands, but I have this command to honor them. And so I don't honor my parents by um, becoming really rude to them and theologically know it all to them. And like, well, you guys are just boomer. Okay, boomer. Like just being absolutely sinful and disrespectful to them, even when they're wrong. In, and I'm, I'm not talking about like if they're like, there are really terrible parents that you should not trust. And there's valid times to cut off parents even. And that can to protect your own children and things like that. But I'm just talking about these run-of-the-mill disagreements where they they don't see it. You honor them, and you do what Dan said. You said, okay. And you say this in your heart and your soul and your family, and you get this right. We're going to take ground on this issue that my parents never did. Because they, th- they, did, they weren't disciple to think rightly about this. They're not thinking rightly about this. But as for me and my children, I'm going to tell them, son, daughter, mom and dad are working for your children's inheritance. Right, not for you to depend on, for your children to receive, right? And so you need to get to work on their children's inheritance. Like I just think you, you, you take the ball and you take the handoff in the generation, and you keep going, and you honor them. You don't publicly disparage them. You don't try to wear them down or like belittle them. I think you don't. A lot of the time, this looks like not forcing every conversation to just kind of like be about how you think they're wrong about everything. That's just a really good way of dishonoring your parents and ending up with a really terrible relationship that is your fault. Yeah, you're sinning. You're actually just sinning. And God says, do you want to live long in the land? Honor your father and mother. He doesn't say, do you want to live long in the land? If your parents get everything right, honor them. Well, like what parents would end up getting honor? You you certainly wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> like we want our children to honor us, even though hopefully standing on our shoulders, they'll see farther than we did. Like I f- fully expect my children and Dan's children and your children to take ground that we never even thought about. But, and they're like, well, this is the obvious next thing to do. And we're yeah, like, it wasn't even wow, possible. That's yeah. genius. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would have never done that and probably couldn't have, you know, but they will, Lord willing. So. I think it's pretty simple. You honor your father and mother. That's good. Yeah, yeah I think that really ties into the conclusion where, like, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Because honoring your father and yep. mother is actually a really good place to Huge. start. I know we've talked about it in the past, but one of the best ways is to recognize, even with the faults of your father and mother and the sins that they, they had committed and, yeah. and their shortcomings, is that you are who you are because of them. Yeah, And so any blessings that you have are usually because of your parents and your upbringing. And so it's best to dwell on those things rather than their shortcomings and why, you know, why hasn't my my father given me, you know, a million dollars worth of rental properties in order to manage, you know, and you can start lamenting that. And it ends up actually being really effeminate and gay it's because pleasant. you're not taking responsibility. You just wish that something had happened. And 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 so what are the things that you you need to do? Honor your father and mother. Well, in order to do that, you need to be a self-controlled man. You yep. need to have self-control. A self-controlled man is not a man that makes excuses. Yep. A self-controlled man is not one that blames other men or other people for their problems. So what is a self-controlled man? I think it helps to just 
by the way, identify like what is a man? Maybe that would be helpful. What is a man? What is a man? Yeah. Oh yeah, this is a tough one. Today. What is a what is a man? Yeah, I don't know. Don't ask your your te- your uh, public I'm not school a teacher biologist. Yeah, I think I'm not 100 percent sure. Actually, sure let's let's edit that out. Let's edit that question out. I don't know if we have an answer. <laughs> uh oh. Oh boy. What is, what is a man? No, you're right. You do need to start with it. We're thinking about this in terms of as is often helpful. These uh, expanding spheres where you're a you're a you're an individual man or woman. Okay, you have duties before God in that yeah. vocation. As a man or a woman, then you're maybe a father or a mother or a husband, a wife. Okay, that's another. You're 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 this person nestled in this bigger sphere, being a father, mother, husband, wife. Then you're nestled in this other sphere, being a churchman, churchwoman, where you are, uh, you know, one of God's covenant people, participating in a local church and good membership. And then you go out and you're you're you know you have duties as a citizen. You have to you know you kind of go out in these spheres. And you can begin to understand, I think, and 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 get your assignment, discover your job description that God gives you rather than inventing it yourself in each of those spheres can yeah, honestly just be really helpful. I think there's like there's there's two you know levels or stratums to this thing, right? Where on the one hand, we have all the general principles, right? Mm-hmm. Men are supposed to provide and protect. Genesis 2.15, we're made in the image of God. Man comes from the root word for veer, courage. Men are supposed to be courageous. So, like, you start with these general principles, and then I think, Brian, a lot of what you're saying, then you go out in the real world, yeah, and you figure out, okay, I got to be those things, but you know, if if you're Eric, you're you know, it might be that you're a writer. Mm-hmm. If you're you're Dan, it might be that you're really good at marketing. You know, whatever it is, or, or business, or you'll find those areas where you have your niche. But I think fundamental to everything, and why self control and discipline is so important here, is because, like, if you can't like take care of your body, if you can't get to bed on time, if you can't sleep well um, and, and keep a schedule, if you can't discipline what you put in your body, like none of this even matters. So I, I would just say, uh, as I've always said on my podcast, like just go to the basic bedrock things. Discipline equals freedom. Yeah. Start with, you know, things like uh, a daily exercise. Start with things like caloric intake. Start with your, your bank account and your budgeting. Because trust me, if you can't if you can't budget your own finances, you cannot run a business <laughs> unless you work for the U.S. government, and then you probably are doing pretty solid because you just get more and more. You'll debt. be in charge of other people then. Yeah, exactly. Teaching if, them how not to run a business. If <laughs> you spend money poorly, yeah. you'll be in charge. Yes. But, but I would say, yeah, you you have to self control yourself in in those personal economic ways. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. The way I had written that was, you need to have the basics in the basics category. Yes. yes. You know, so so those are some of the basic things of like what what forms a man. Another thing I would put into that category is that so men are made to take dominion. Yeah, those are the marching orders. Yep, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion. Okay, and so in you order to, to take dominion, and- yeah, what what that involves like so if you were to walk into the barren land and the order was take dominion over this, you have to have an idea of what that's supposed to look like. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Do I walk around in circles until I've covered the whole, like, you know, obviously it means more than that. What would success look like? Yeah, what would success look like? So I think it's really helpful to have certain principles. Uh, I've talked about it as, like, having a mission, vision, values. Those are, like, very corporate-y sort of business terms. But I I think applied to the man, having principles that you would die for uh, before capitulating are really vital to have. Yeah. Certain things that I exist to do this thing, this thing, and this thing, and I would die before I capitulate on any of those things. 
And then you would use your time, money, wealth, and place to serve those principles. Yes. And, and, and they are, again, keep, you know, the principles start with the basics in a basics category. Like, God forbid you become a successful business person, it goes to your head, you cheat on your wife with the secretary, and blow up your, and then you're a, a, a wealthy loser. Like, God forbid that you do something like that. And you pass on generational curses instead of generational yes. wealth. You know, God forbid you succeed in building this durable, anti-fragile, productive property business, whatever it is, and then you sell it out to the pagans so you can go and have some fun vacations and just shoot your legacy in the foot. Like, God forbid you don't disciple your children and you put all your time and all of your best strength into just building this wealth-producing thing, and then you fail to catechize and disciple your children and you lose them to an Absalom somewhere who's going to steal their hearts. You know, God forbid you do those things. But once you have those kind of basics in here, getting really practical, I think, on this on this subject can be helpful because a lot of guys are probably looking at this and like, I want to do this. I don't I, I want to increase my income. I want to build productive assets. I want to do this stuff. Like, I don't know where to start. And I do think one of the most practical places where uh, a young man can start in thinking about this is thinking in two, just disciplining yourself to think in two directions kind of all the time. One of them is, what did God give me? What did he put in my hands? What, what are those, your assets are going to be your skills too. What am I good at? Am I good at talking? Am I good at words and communicating? Am I good at building? Am I good at doing that assessment? Maybe you're a one talent guy, five talent guy, 10 talent guy, whatever it is. Where is my one talent? Where, where is that? And then also, in an outward-facing way, saying, what are the needs of my neighbors? What are the needs and wants of my neighbors that wouldn't be sinful, right? <laughs> you know, because your neighbors have some wants that would be sinful to go out and provide for them. Your neighbors want to look at porn. Don't, you know, don't be like, oh, an economic opportunity. No. <laughs> what are the non-sinful, what are the righteous needs, the normal human needs that your neighbors have or wants and needs that are, would be righteous to fulfill. And then you can start to get out of this kind of like um, trying to discover your Enneagram number and your like spiritual gift survey will somehow magically tell you exactly what job to do. It's like, no. Because then you're going to get the result. Your spiritual gift is being conquered. Your spiritual gift is being conquered. It's like, no, if you instead go, well, okay, I am really good at managing people. I'm really good at it. So I might not be really good at doing some trade or something like that, but maybe I'm really good. Well, that's a great skill. So maybe I'll build a business and say, I'm going to use like the least glamorous business idea I've ever had, which is porta potty rentals. Maybe you're like, our area has a lot of, uh, it has a lot of construction going on all the time. A lot of development. You know what development sites need? Porta potties. So I'm going to say, what capital would I need to start a porta potty company? I'm going to train some people, manage them well, get some systems in place so that I can uh, rent out a porta potty with less overhead than the competitor, provide better service because I'm a Christian, honor my word, just go about it Christianly. And then pretty soon, maybe you, you end up operating the largest porta potty rental in your, in your, in your city. <laughs> and it sounds silly, but it's like, literally, that's something that people are going to need forever. Anywhere they're building stuff, like there are, when you start to think this way, looking in and saying, what is, what are the talents God's put in my hands? And then looking out and saying, what do my neighbors need or want? And can I connect the two in a way that's economically productive, loves my neighbor by benefiting them, benefits my family and hires people, you know, builds business. 
And, and pretty soon you look out and instead of having a scarcity mindset, which is so much of the killer of productivity and building productive wealth, this scarcity mindset of, well, there are few jobs and a lot of people competing for them. How will I ever make a living? And instead you look and you're like, there's a lot of people around here that people have a lot of needs and wants. I bet I could find a need or a want, or maybe two or three or four or five different things, you know, multiple streams of income. Dang, I bet if I just read the Proverbs, worked hard as unto the Lord, generous with my money, honest with my customers, love the people I encounter, take a genuine interest in other humans. Like if I just do these Christian things, wow, maybe there's not a scarcity out there. Maybe there's enormous opportunity. Like the world is made out of opportunity right now is one of the things Christians need to get in their bones. Yeah, yeah the, big time. There was one story I heard where uh, a gold miner was asked the question, how, how do you find gold? And he said, gold's everywhere. You just need the eyes to see it. <laughs> mm. And and so that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. You have to have a different frame of reference in order to see that there's actually opportunities everywhere. Yes. And and so another thing that I would like to talk about, so you, you said uh, that you need to, uh, what was your first point? You said you had two points. So you look in and you say, you where, in, where am, what I, am I good at? Because people yeah, yeah. are different. And then you look out and you say, what do my neighbors need? Okay, that's want? great. The other thing I would say is find a respectable man because this so much crosses over with masculinity mm-hmm. in wealth creation and, and uh, taking dominion in mm-hmm. uh, wealth money space is that you find somebody that has been successful and then make, put yourself in their way. Yeah. And, and, and just enculturate yourself with this person and think like they think and do like they do yeah. because people who are wealthy, just like men who are especially masculine, they think differently. Yeah. They just do. That's something that I've discovered over the last few years, just surrounding myself with men who have been more successful in business. It's like, wow, you think about these issues way differently and these opportunities way differently than I do. Mm. And it's very, very helpful because it, also read. You should definitely read, uh, yeah. which is very, very helpful. But having on the ground help from other men that have been successful and are doing this successfully is unbelievably helpful. Yeah. I think as well, you know, when we're talking about the power of community in pooling resources, providing, you know, having in-group preference Christians should be operating on in-group preference in a lot of ways. Parallel economy type stuff. Yeah, where we're saying, I'm building my business and I want to hire Christians. I want the money that is being brought in to stay in this little, in this place, I'm in the local church. I want to hire that person, bring them up, business partners. You know, I know churches and groups that are of Christians who are pooling together and saying, instead of DCAing into the stock market, and putting my $500 dollar cost averaging, putting my $500 a month investment into you know, a mutual fund ETF, S&P, you know, whatever. S&P yeah. individual stocks, cryptocurrency, whatever it is. Well, what if we formed REITs and real estate investment groups? If we formed you know, business other, investment other business investment yeah. groups. And what if 50 men in your church were all putting their $500 a month or whatever it is, or $100 a month, into a mutual pooled investment group and you started elevating two or three guys that were particularly skilled and proven and gifted in managing those resources, what could you do? What might you be able to build together in terms of productive? And I'm talking about like foothold in your community and real estate, helping your church, but also just producing productive wealth creating businesses. 
assets. And, and what happens is that, you know, where 10 isolated men who own homes in a city are going to have very little influence on a city council and things like that when they're doubling your property taxes every two years, like they're doing here in Utah. And, uh, but 10 businesses, that that's powerful. 10, 10 businesses or guys that own influential business interests in the community, those men, because they have of an owned interest, a proven owned interest in the community in ways that it's sinful that they ignore homeowners and that sort of thing. But that actually does make a difference when you go to then try to flex the own space muscles. All of a sudden it's like, it's actually, it's a lot more difficult. Like think about a place like Moscow, Idaho, where a lot of the the biggest businesses, a lot of the biggest restaurants and things like that, some of the best businesses in the town are all from members of Christ Church. So they're just like, you know, they're much harder to push around. It gets harder and harder to push you around. It gets easier and easier for you to exercise benevolent influence and positive influence in your place to the degree that you're successful in acquiring wealth, money, and space in that place and using it Christianly. Yeah, and I think I think banding together in, in, in investment groups and things like that is great. It, it might be high, you know, as far as the bar goes. Yeah, yeah. But you know what's not a high bar is if you've got a, a church that, of people that are godly and that you trust, and you say like, hey, I, 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 I want to be a plumber. I want to own my own plumbing business. Mm. If I'm a plumber, will you guys be my customers? Yeah. Like, I, I need customers. Will you guys be my customers? Mm-hmm. Will you give me, like you said, in-group preference? Yep. All of a sudden, that, that barrier, that risk that we were talking about, yeah. taking the risk becomes a lot more realistic. It does. In, in some ways. I'm going to be the HVAC guy or whatever trade it is, yeah. the car mechanic, whatever we, we side hustle. We need a midwife. We yeah, need we a do. really competent midwife in our church. We have great midwife, you know, that we all use. She's getting older. She's not, you know, not a part of the church. I don't think she's a Christian, but it's like, you know, you start looking at a community that's really productive. Do, do you know how many babies we'll have had 2022 and into 2023 right now? Oh, how many? It's unbelievable. 18. 18. So you look at that and you say, we pay on average, let's say our midwife costs on average $4,000 per birth. I think that's pretty standard in our area for yeah, an experience. Four to five. Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Four, five, six. So you go, okay, well, we've just provided 18 of those. Let's say even 12 of those end up being midwife customers for you. Well, they're give, that just gave you a base of $60,000 in income. There you go. So go find a few other people, you know, like we might not be able to keep your plumbing business open single-handedly. No. But we might give you this Espe- huge base to help with. But especially, you know, one of the fears is external factors on a business. That's what, that's one of the unknowns. It's like, mm-hmm. well, what, what sort of economic conditions are we going to have another business closure or whatever? But if you're in a church and you have people that you trust and you're like, no, I won't get the vaccine. No, I won't wear the mask. No, I won't do this thing I w- that they're asking me to do. Um, will you hire me? They should say Yes. Yes, you yeah. you will have business here. Yep. You will have business here. And so I think that's, you know, going along with that, the the power of community, we think so individualistically. And there's so much more power. And the pagans do this. Yeah, they do. They're really good at it. Yeah. So so using and leveraging <laughs> look, the people that you have. Look at Joe Biden's son. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know. <laughs> that's in-group preference right there. Even in the uh, the ghetto culture, but like the Jews are very well known for this, like taking care of each other. Well, yeah, yeah the, the Rothschilds. You can look at yeah, middleman or, minority groups through history. But even like, you know, like the Jewish culture in New York City, for example, like mm-hmm. they take care of each other. Yep. That's what you do. Yeah. Well, guys, we've we've come to the end of this show just simply because of time. There is more that we can say, and we'll continue to talk 
Uh, in our After Hours show, we produce a special patron-exclusive episode because our patrons really help make this show possible. And so we try to give them this added value of an extra show each week where we kind of hit we hit stop on the main recording and we just hit record again. And uh, we, we normally, we're much funnier. Like, we're much, it's actually better in every way. Let me just say that. So if you think the King's Hall is great, just wait till you hear After Hours. There are uh, different racial impersonations that Dan does. There are mainly Dan, actually only Dan. Uh, there are biz, you know, all kinds of. Uh, I talk about different twi- people groups. Dan talk or Eric talks about the best tweets of the week all the time. Like he's he's connected, uh, and so sign up there. Help us make this show possible, and uh, the link is in the description. We want to thank as as usual our our sponsors for this episode, Reformation Bible College. And uh, or I'm sorry, Christendom Bible College and Reformation Heritage Books. I combined them into one ultra sponsor, <laughs> and we're we're thankful to both of those sponsors. Uh, help help us out by, you know, supporting those sponsors. Checking out the library Reformation Heritage Books has this unapologetically Christian higher education that Christendom Bible College is offering. There, we've got links in the description for both of those sponsors. Our Patreon as well as other goodies there. So make sure you check that out. Share this episode with your friends. Uh, thanks to uh, Gab CEO Andrew Torba for sharing our last week's episode uh, over on Gab and uh, convincing us to get on Gab TV, which we had completely forgotten to do. Yeah, so check that out. You can check us out on Gab TV now as well. We've, we're putting our new episodes and working our, getting our back catalog up there on Gab TV, another place to listen by some base Christians who are uh, building... You know, something actually pretty massive there in a social media site used by tens of millions of people. So check that out. And uh, thanks again for listening. As always, Winkit, Quisa Winkit, he conquers who conquers himself. Go out, be self ruled Chad Kings. See you next time in the Kings Hall. Mm-hmm.